Do you obsessively clean your bathroom's mirrors, hoping to clear up any streaks and smudges because you think you saw a ghostly otherworldly figure hovering there? Everyone wants to be sure that the portal to the mirror world is truly spotless. Those other glass cleaning products always leave barely discernible but still nagging residue that can leave you wondering if that was a soul-stealing doppelganger you just saw while brushing your teeth, or just a trick of the light. But Moreau and Strickland's new prismatic wipes are guaranteed to leave absolutely no detectable stripes or even molecular remnants behind. These disposable microfiber tissues are soaked in just enough corrosive acids to eat away any organic particles as well as formulated to evaporate completely, leaving nothing touching your terrifyingly clear mirrors but God's own air. And if you order now, they'll include a handheld version of their new all-spectra sterilizing lamp, guaranteed to disintegrate all airborne dust, mites, and biological debris down to 5 micrometers, so you can be sure that nothing will float onto your mirror in those important moments before looking away. We all hate that suspicion that our reflection changed its expression into aggressive hatred right as we turn away. And when you sanitize the area on, in front of, and even anywhere near your mirror, you can turn off the lights without needing to check again and again and again. Just use the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, Moreau and Strickland, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Wow. So many eye-opening comments these last two weeks. Some people are breaking away from the episode-by-episode response and just creating whole new rooms for us to explore. And keep doing it. Like we always say, we don't mind going back to old things, especially if you have new ideas. Mm-hmm. Don't uh, We have so, much, so many things out there now. I know people are saying, I haven't caught up with everything. Don't worry about that. Keep making comments and notes because half the fun is going back to talk about yeah. those other things with stuff we've forgotten. So no worries at all. In fact, some of these comments are so eye-opening that they make me want to go back and re-edit the episodes. I can't. This podcast is not pedagogy. It's not a reference. We're <laughs> not here to detail an angle. This is an exploration. And for me, It's been incredibly fruitful. I feel my understanding of this book has excelled more in this reading than it has since I read for the very first time. And that's because of y'all. And I will say too, it may not be a reference yet, but once we get everything done and all (laughs) the comments added in, then it will be the final repository of all new sun knowledge. That's true, but it will be a reference like Latro's scroll. You have to read it from the beginning. It's not at all searchable or indexed. You just get in there and absorb it all. Yeah. So last episode, we pondered hard on the Adamnian steps. Is that, am I saying that right, Craig? I usually think Adamnian. Adamnian. But what's the point of that name? Well, Filippo de Paolo pretty much nailed that for me. To be honest, Filippo was on fire. 
This is just the beginning. I was frustrated that there was a Saint Adamnan, but not a Saint Adamnia. And it wasn't clear why he needed steps named after him. Filippo identified this as a reference to the vision of Saint Adamnan. It's a bit of Irish literature, naturally, and it's attributed to the Irish Saint Adamnan, who lived in the 8th century, but it's speculated that this was written in the 10th or 11th century. On the day of the feast of St. John the Baptist, Adamnan is taken by an angel to tour heaven, and after that they descend to hell. But midway, they see a walled city with six gates, where those who are attempting to advance to heaven are confronted. Those who are unready for heaven have to stay there. This is a reference to a kind of purgatory. A century before, the doctrine of the purgatory was officially detailed in Catholic dogma. And sure enough, midway between the Pellerine Cathedral and the Botanic Gardens on the Adamnian Steps, Severian is able to make out the Citadel, where he remembers being able to see the white line on the horizon that he now knows are these steps. So, by this reading, Agia, whose name Filippo notes is Greek for holy or saint, like Hagia Sophia, is Severian's angel. And that means that the citadel, and by extension, the Manichean Tower, is purgatory, where souls are purified before they are sent to heaven, and I guess the botanic gardens are hell. That's what I was trying to figure out. Would that mean that the gardens are hell or, I mean, you could also take it just as a larger point that here we have a world that hasn't quite deserved its savior yet. Like there's still mm -hmm. going to be tests. And so it certainly fits that, you know, Severian would be starting off on his weird journey here by being in purgatory. But I'm trying to think, would how does it map on the actual parts of Nessus? That's where it's, where it's harder. <laughs> well, I'm not me. sure it does, but the steps themselves go up and down, just like True. in the story. Now, I feel stupid all of a sudden. Are they walking down the steps to get into the gardens, or are they walking up steps? They must be walking down because they're going down to where the river is. Right, and that's that's what I was I was thinking. And that would be odd to then descend. Well, then that would mean, yeah, I guess, unless you could be descending into purgatory. The only reason I say this is because in the gardens, I mean, both good and bad things happen. Dorcas is resurrected, but we also is that is where the Avern is housed, right? But the Avern mm -hmm. also sets him further on his path. So, yeah, it's hard harder for me to map a single thing on it. But I really do like the idea that Nessus has the steps to purgatory. Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that well, that in and, itself seems wonderful. Well, in the vision of Adamnan, he doesn't actually enter purgatory. He sees it midway. Yeah. So, which kind of works. And because, you know, you're confronted when you try to um, get to heaven by, what, a walled city? A citadel, which is there to confront people. It works on a lot of levels, I think. Okay. Well done, Filippo. Yeah, well done. I'm trying to think, now, where would Wolf maybe have encountered this? Like, would he have dealt with the original task? Could this be in whatever sort of saints mm -hmm. reference that he was using? That's a good Perhaps. question. I'm just, I just don't know. I mean... It might have come up in his enthusiasm for Dante, who was That's true. obviously that... influenced by it. Could well be. Could be. But Filippo has more. He notes there's a technical difference between a nun and a monarch, a female monk. He says monarchs are 
older religious orders and their votes are solemn, tend to adhere to chastity and reclusion, while nuns are more about service towards others, assistance to elderly, poor, and sick. In a way, a monarch serves a higher purpose, like the Pellerines, and this makes him think they could be a leftover from a previous Catholic tradition. Ha! Huh. Well, I see his point. Still. Yeah, I mean, you could say that housing the claw, I mean, if the claw goes all the way back to the conciliator, then you could say that it was old like that. But then we also know once we get to Citadel that the Pel- the Pelerines are actually out in the war zones. Right. They serve people. as nurses, so, right? Yeah. On the battlefield for both sides. Yep. So there's a bit of none in there as well. For all of this, I, of course, remember, I've, I'll put the links in the show notes. Goonhands on Reddit has some thoughts about the Pellerine red cloaks. So Varianagia spent a lot of time considering why that color. And Goonhand says, I thought the red of the Pellerines was for the blood. The thorn within the claw is special because it was drenched in the blood of the conciliator. You know what? That makes sense, Goonhands. But then again, the Pellerines don't even seem to realize that the claw is a thorn. Right. I doubt anyone but Severian himself know that he had his blood on it. Actually, my favorite pet theory is that they're really thinking that they're dressed in the color of the sun, which mm. would fit. They just don't know the full truth of the sun. So mm. they have the sort of fallen sun. They don't know the true golden blazing sun. To them, the sun is a red thing. But oh. still, they're in the symbol of the sun. Uh, I like that. I, I like it. I don't know if it works. I don't know if it's actual what he was intending, <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> Well, I think the lesson of the pilgrim's cloak, the mantle that Severian wears, is that symbols arise out of any number of random reasons that only become appropriate later and end up being applicable symbols at the end. The color of the Pellerine's cloak makes sense with the blood, but it makes sense after the fact. Who knows how it arose? He has some other things to say that I'm going to take up in about seven chapters. In addition, Filippo says it cannot be a coincidence that Terminus Est and the Claw are destroyed at the same time. And I agree with that. I think it might be a literary reference to us as readers, but I'm withholding judgment for now. Severian gets his sword almost 24 hours before he gets the Claw. He lavishes honor and commitment to both. They're destroyed almost simultaneously. Very astute to notice, Filippo. Yeah. And it does come right at the point where Severian starts to talk about not necessarily needing the symbol to be magical anymore because he started to internalize what it means. So there's a little bit of throwing things away and also not needing them anymore in that moment. And that's true of both the claw as a magic item, but also of Terminus Est and what it represents. And also his theory is that after the Herodules bow to Severian and examine the claw, he figures they drain the claw of its powers since this is their last encounter with Severian. Well, I'm not sure I agree, but largely because, you know, I have a different and very particular perspective on the claw and what it's doing. Also, I have to ponder why this brings on the destruction of Terminus Est. Filippo has a very Dune-centric view of the Book of the New Sun. He sees Severian as a kind of Maudib from Frank Herbert's novel. (laughs) To be sure, there are a lot of overlaps, though, between the Book of the New Sun and Dune. It would be interesting to see a study of two different forms of messianism. (laughs) Science fiction messiahs, that's what we Uh, make a study of. On the subject of the first Severian, uh, Filippo notes that 
Severian says there was one Severian before him, but he never said that he was the second. Philippos says there are many, many Severians throughout the series, and there is a reason for that. He sees it as tied to the importance of the claw. He sees Aji and Agilus working for the Herodules. He says, I would be surprised if Agia did not open the store more than one time in her whole life. I'm pretty sure the real owner is one of the corpses laying around in Nessus. At this point, I'm willing to entertain almost any theory about Agia. So yeah, Lippo. <laughs> and of course, Craig, you and I have already bandied the theory that the corpse at Severian's breakfast that day was the rag shop's owner, the real mm -hmm. owner. As for many Severians, yeah, theoretically, there could have been. Had to be, in some sense, an infinite number of Severians before our Severian. And, Craig, we're going to touch on that in today's episode. Mm -hmm. There's so yep. much that we agree on about this book, Filippo. Stop holding back on us. And then we come to the issue of the mensal of the monarchs. Filippo says, in Italian... We use a similar word, mensile. It's a word for wages. Filippo doesn't think Severian intended the word in that sense. He thinks it's a corrupted sense of the word mess hall, a military term that's being used as a cafeteria for monks. He sees it as a signal that the pelerines and the torturers are an artifact of the extinguished Catholic Church and that, quote, all that is left from the Catholic tradition is the temporal power and none of the spiritual one. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. It does fit too with the idea that a lot of people have bandied around that maybe the torturers themselves are the final misunderstood version of the Catholic Church that's still around. Yeah, um, doesn't it's hard to jive that exactly with what happens? What we find out a little more in Earth of the New Sun and the Origins, but um, nonetheless, yeah, I'm not so sure the that mensal can't mean the original definition though. Uh, case in point. Michael Andre Driussi is still chewing on that street race in chapter 18, the destruction of the altar. Mm -hmm. Last round, we, well, you, me, Michael too, speculated that the allspice in the mortar that Severian smells was in their mixing bowl, their mortar bowl. And indeed, the literal definition of a mensal is a food stipend of the clergy. So, the mensal of the monarchs could simply refer to the Pellerines' daily meal. Alternatively, it means having to do with the supper table. Again, not a building. So Michael's willing to try that on for size. He asks, if it is true, and the building Severian sees at the beginning of the race was the cathedral, was Agia's race a drag race or a lap race? He says, since my reading has the couple close enough to the international house of allspice that they can smell the place, your notion that it is the cathedral of the claw makes it seem to me that their cab race is less a crooked line than a true circle. And Craig, you suggested that the circle might actually be more indicative of manipulation or predestination. Maybe. Maybe. I suggest that the race might be around the common area to the opposite side, like Achilles in his chariot circling Troy. The driver misjudges, or maybe he doesn't misjudge, but the actual location of the tent within the commons 
when he tries to clip the circumference near the end and thus plows into the uh, cathedral. On Reddit, Der Grim Nebulon blew me away with a new First Severian Thea post. Why it makes sense for First Severian and Thea to be a couple. And I know what you're thinking. James, you're biased. You'll like any theory that would support your crackpot theory. <laughs> True. But this is not just a convenient theory. This is perfect. I would have walked down this path anyway, even without this first Severian theory, I just would have thrown up my hand and said, I'm not sure I see the point. Remember that one of the things I like about the first Severian theory is that it provides a father to Severian's son, a first person of the Trinity to our Severian's second person of the Trinity. Der Grimm Nebulon says, the mythological equivalent of Thea, T-H-E-A, is Thea, T-H-E-I-A, the consort of Hyperion, the father of lights, the father of Helios, the sun. One of Helios's many consorts is Rode, which possibly derives from the Greek for rose. Remember, Thecla's scent is burning rose. Mm-hmm. Thea and Thea are essentially the same name, both meaning, you know, godly. In this, first Severian would be Hyperion, while second Severian would be Helios. First Severian with Thea on board as part of his mind would make the second Severian. The only thing I can really see that ties Rode to Thecla is the Rose. Also, one of Helios' son is disintegrated by a lightning bolt from Zeus after almost setting the world on fire. Obviously makes me think of young Severian. So what I like about this is I'm not exactly sure how to map it directly onto Thea, but the one thing about it that I do like that makes me want to think about it more is because we have Titans giving way to a sun god. You know, Hyperion was one of the Titans, and the fact that we got this sort of generation of gods to me is really suggestive of a lot of things about how New Sun is kind of having ideas come from having, well, my old theory that that I've hinted at a couple of times about whether or not a certain atheist world can create some kind of divine version of itself or something. Mm-hmm. But what I like here is that if you have a story where we're getting Hyperion, a Titan giving way to Helios, it's kind of like, and, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I was trying to remember, but Milton, John Milton has a wonderful poem that's all about, it's really a Christmas poem. And it's all about uh, the birth of baby Jesus, but it's really done in in the sense of how all the old pagan and Greek gods are, their sun is setting and the new sun is about to rise. Mm. And it has this really evocative way of trying to, to show how, whether or not you believe it, but how the Christian story takes up all the things that are best and partially fulfilled in paganism and turns them into something much more powerful. The Nativity Ode. It's a really cool poem. But I like that that story, too, kind of does something similar, where a Hyperion is kind of a, he's a rough titan and whatnot, but he gives birth to this whole, you know, or he creates this whole line of things that, that create a much more beautiful world after, in particularly, we get the sun god. Now, whether or not Wolf was directly thinking about there, I'm not sure, but I do really like those connections that are made because otherwise, the relationship between Hyperion and Helios, I think, is just so 
promising for all kinds of things about it's work. so yeah it's so on point and the thing is thea and thea it's it, it would have been confusing to me a year ago and now it's oh yes of course it's i mean it falls just in line with the way i see this book now yeah oh, oh incidentally and i think i've mentioned this before that in the fourth century christianity just basically consumed all of the symbology of the sun worship of the time, the unconquerable sun worship. Mm -hmm. Also on Reddit, to be quite honest, I don't give enough about Reddit, suggests that the day of Thecla's scheduled excruciation was Holy Catherine's feast day, but it was moved out to two days later. That's pretty cool. So many people thinking about the claw. Oliver Byrne, started a really interesting conversation about the claw and its relation to Severian's symbols shape us musing. Great discussion. Impossible to summarize. Link. Speaking of which, on Reddit, Lord of Atlantis says that what's important about the claw is not its shape, but its purpose. It is the device by which the heroes and the or the first Severian or the Increate grabs our Severian. That was very creative. <laughs> it, could be, it could be intentional. It could very yeah, well be intentional. it could. Well, well. Although it makes me think of like the, the vending machine claw. <laughs> the claw. The claw. That's what you the need claw. for the story thing. Right? The claw. The claw. Oh, someplace I'm going to have to use that clip. <laughs> and Craig, you had a bit of a correction about Fabio's discussion about the claw. Remember, we had lost a few minutes of Fabio's conversation, unfortunately. Yeah. And there was one part where he started to say something and it. It seemed as if he was saying that the claw had been an actual claw, like an animal claw. And he was, he was really bringing that up as like a, a, just a speculation or supposition. Not that that's what it really was, but if you treat it like a claw, it could be this, but there's another part that unfortunately did get garbled a little bit. And so he didn't include it where he definitely said, yeah, it's a thorn. It's a, you know, <laughs> as we know later on and it, it right. comes out. So I didn't want to make it sound like he didn't remember a single plot point because he had actually just <laughs> written his three essays about Citadel too. So that was exactly. fresh in his mind. Yeah. Adam Nellis Bolton had an extensive post about the claw and on recursion and reflection. It reminded me a lot of Joan Gordon's thoughts on mm -hmm. the matter about Master Olton's library, but also on the similarity between the shape of Gabriel's horn and the shape of the claw. What I'll say is what I said in the post. Uh, eventually, I'll have a lot more to say in the subject. But Gabriel's horn and Heimdall's horn, which also signals the end of the world, Ragnarok. Also, the golden mane on the curved neck of Heimdall's horse or Kronos's sickle that is used to castrate Uranus. Originally, Mars was a fertility god like Kronos and his sword with a sickle. Hermes curved sword that he used to decapitate Argos, the sword he gave to Perseus to decapitate Medusa, the curved blade of the sun in the tail of the student in the sun, Latro's falcata, and the claw. Mythologically speaking, they are shadows of the same figure. And that's all I can say. <laughs> that's a lot to begin with. But that 
whole thing about the the horn is really cool. He posts uh, some mm-hmm. physics and mathematical description of of what all is going on there. But it was so cool how so many people found all kinds of resonances, yes. even with yes. timelines and how history might work and how time travel may not be just a circle or a straight line, but might even be a little bit of a kind of spiraling inward towards different points, which I thought right, worked yeah. really well with some ideas that you've had before. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah, it's a, it's a spiral. It's a, it's spiraling upward. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, Craig, Facebook can be really boring and depressing, but <laughs> the rereading wolf Facebook group is a light in my day. If You've gotten off of Facebook because you don't want to hear your mother-in-law talk about politics and religion. I recommend that you rejoin just so you can check out what's going on there. You can mute your family. I've muted much of mine. Yes, you can. <laughs> they don't have to know. Brendan Greaves offered an additional association to Master Alton's underground library. Brendan, as we've mentioned before, has started a reading club of the shadow of the torture that includes wolf loving musicians, folklorists, writers, and archivists. Oh, to be a fly on that wall. At this point, they are at chapter six in Olton's quote, Borgian library. He posted a link to an article about the tunnels under Buenos Aires. He says, quote, constructed by Jesuits as an escape routes, that connected various churches around the city. They seem like a possible inspiration for the library, corridors of time, and other tunnels of Nessus. I noted that the tunnels were only discovered in 1985. So like my association of the Botanical Gardens to Galveston's Moody Gardens, this would require a time machine. But Brendan countered that they were the stuff of legend in the early 20th century. So there's a possibility Wolf had heard about that. Certainly. I think lots of people have probably heard about the Paris catacombs and, and things mm-hmm. like that, which are extensive. But the Brazilian ones was way cool. I had never heard of this before. And yeah. I, I desperately want to know more about it. So, And I kept thinking of like, like if Borges's library, I mean, Borges wasn't Brazilian, I know, but, but like to, if, if he, if the library of Babel could been under there, this like infinitely lowering deeper and deeper library. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was really cool imaging. You know, either way, I'm sure Wolf was smiling in satisfaction when he read about this discovery. But how perfect, really. Michael Grant played the straw that stirs the drink on the Facebook group with some very good questions at the heart of this book, such as, the coming of the new sun is a very fine thing and all, but it doesn't seem to solve the problem of Erebus and Abia. And who are the witches? And how did the analeptic Alzabo being taken by the Autark get started? I have some particular ideas about these questions. So did other people. I gave my answers there. Check out the links. We got some musical posts too. Um, Jérôme Laberge, I hope I'm saying that correctly, posted a song that was inspired by the Hyroduels, which is definitely worth a listen. Earthlister and superstar musician Stuart Ham recently joined the Facebook group. Based on my experience, he's bound to have something interesting to offer in the future. And Stuart has actually written songs based on Wolf before, which mm-hmm. you can find out more about. And I think it was either on one of those threads or in, in just the regular Gene Wolf Facebook group where he had posted some links to things, or at least the titles. Right. 
I seem to recall him mentioning stuff on that in the Earth list too. So he's been doing he's been around for a long time. Oh, we also got recommendations on Apple Podcasts. First one, absolutely one of my favorite by Particle Noun. As a longtime fanatic of Wolf, particularly Book of the New Sun, I love this podcast. I have spent years in various places on the internet and in real life discussing, arguing, dissecting this work. And this podcast gives one the sense of sitting around the table with good friends and spinning out all your wildest theories. That's exactly how we do it, Craig. Mm -hmm. Those who've been as obsessed as I will recognize many names they float in and out as guests and theories new and old are pulled from the muck like Dorcas from the black waters. Highly <laughs> recommended. And then we have another by Frabbit's fan. Await each episode with great satisfaction. There are so many great things about this podcast. It's hard to list them all. Both hosts have many years experience with Gene Wolf theories and the wider Wolf community, allowing them to cover practical to the sublime. They bring amazing guests, well-known to Wolf fans in their broadcasts for great discussions. And last but not least, add entertainment value with Craig's great opening sponsors messages and even James's music choices. Even James, <laughs> Craig. We should tell people <laughs> that you've written more of the ads. I just do the voice. That voice makes it. <laughs> I was, I think I wrote like for three of them and, and read, and then I finally got you to read them. And I just laughed my head off when you were reading them. <laughs> As someone who has been rereading Wolf since a family friend and bookstore owner gave me a copy of the first paperback release of Claw of the Conciliator almost 40 years ago, I started reading in the wrong place. Whole other story. Reading along with the podcast feels like a new beginning. Thanks. Incidentally, Particle Now and Frabbit's Fan, you're going to like the next two episodes. That's all I'll say right now. We can pitch it at the end of the episode. But thank you guys so much. That's really cool. And I hope you guys don't mind us reading those, but we just, we, we get a little bit of ego kick out of it. So early, not even ego kick, just sort of just feely, just warm feelies. Yeah. And we're ever closer to calling all the other podcasts, the other two podcasts, fine little niche podcasts. <laughs> as soon as we have the most. I did run into somebody else. There was somebody on Facebook who I couldn't help it. And I said, Hey, we've got one. Cause they were talking about Wolf. And he was like, wow, a whole podcast just about <laughs> Wolf. And so I got to tell him, actually, <laughs> it's not like it's kind of a crowded field actually. Yeah. <laughs> So today we're going to talk Father Aniri's mirrors. And okay, look, I don't suppose you're listening to this if you're spoiler phobic, but we're going to talk about the short story, The Cat, as well. I've tried to warn everyone that if you haven't read it and it matters to you, be sure and get Endangered Species and read The Cat. So if you haven't, come on in. The truth is, is that it doesn't totally spoil it. Anyway, you, you get the, a general idea of a major plot point, but it's actually just a side issue <laughs> in a way. And the tale itself is fun, but but the the meat of the story doesn't necessarily get to, it's not about Severian or anything like that. Right. But what, what's fun about it is all the, the sort of frame story that gives you a little more insight into the house absolute. Yeah. And the way Odillo tells it. 
and some things about those mirrors. Uh, yes, well, that's yes, about those mirrors. And let's find out about those mirrors. <laughs> Chapter 20, Father Aniri's Mirrors. All right, so this leads us directly from the last episode where Agia and Severian are walking through the botanical gardens and now they've come to the jungle room. Severian has never seen the jungles in the north, but being in the jungle garden made him feel just like he had. I know it's just two sentences in, but something about that where the idea is that he's got an idea of something or a simulation of something that makes him feel like he's seen the real thing. Mm -hmm. We're going to get a lot about reflections and reality. And right there in the second sentence, you've already got this thing that I had never seen the thing for real, but I was seeing something which might be a copy or a reflection or a simulation of something which made me feel like I had seen the real thing. Right. That blurred line between copy or reflection and reality is something that is super important to this chapter. And it's right there at the beginning, too. For the first Severian theory, he has been to the jungles. And that could imply his his feeling like he's been there. Mm -hmm. Yep, that is true. Even as Severian recorded this event from the House Absolute, he heard some distant noise that reminded him of the macaw that he saw flying between the trees. He calls it a magenta-breasted cyanus back parrot, reddish-purple breast and neon-blue back. It had white-rimmed eyes. And then he hears the roar of a smilodon. Smilodons, saber-toothed tigers, although they're categorized as a part of a different subfamily than modern cats, whether big cats or little cats. They were extant from about two and a half million years ago and died out about 11,000 years ago. This one is far away and is trying to flush a deer. Agia tells Severian he's more afraid of you than you are of him, which Severian probably thinks is questionable. Her gown, Agia's gown, is torn by a branch exposing her breast, which is putting her in a bad mood. Severian wants answers about how the Smilodon can be so far away, when this is just one room in this Thalus, the, the botanical garden, Agia is dismissive and he gets rough with her. Agia says, I've never gone so deeply into this garden. You were the one who wanted to come. If this path is like the other gardens, it runs in a wide loop that will eventually return us to the door we came in. So this is like the evolution of an Ikea, <laughs> right? Yeah. One thing, too, about her attitude is that in that very first question, he says, what's that? And she says a smile on. But then she actually, you know, from the roar, I can tell what his behavior is. And he's trying to flush mm-hmm. out of here. Now, maybe she's just trying to say that to be like, you know, as a guest. But but he questions her and well, she snaps at him here in a minute. Um, but she also comes across as being very sort of detailed in her answers. Mm-hmm. She knows the north. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. That's my that's my take on it. And. Okay, sorry. Brace yourself, everybody. If she's with the witches, if she's from that stone town, then, yeah, she knows the north. She knows the jungle. She's been there. Or at the very least, she's taken people through these gardens a lot, 
you know. Well, she says she hasn't. She says she's never gone well, deep into these. Yeah, she's yet. that's what she says. But but I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. if we're saying that they've at the very least speculations to the side, at the very least they've run this scam so many times because that's what the the no. people at the inn say. So she's at the very least had to come in here and get the Avern flower yeah. for whatever. So she has seen a lot of this stuff and is speaking with authority. Right. The door behind them vanishes when Severian shuts it. But Agia says that's only an illusion, like pictures that change when you look at them from different angles. When they come to the door from a different angle, they're going to see the door again. So another fun thing here about a painting that changes when you see it from different angles. Well, that's mm, yeah. where that's where he gets his way into the second house or into the, the, the secret house, um, right. the house absolute from a painting, which seems like just a painting, but is actually a whole room set up to do something else. So that kind of trickery is certainly something that a Neri can do, but it's also a question here of whether, yeah, did the door really disappear? Are they actually traveling somewhere? Yeah. I mean, they're going to have to follow a strange little path here in a minute. And we, we've talked before about how time travel in these books always seems to involve following careful paths, twisting. Well, paths. my understanding of the way of the mechanics of the way these rooms work is that, yes, they move through space, but they move through time as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, Asia, whether deliberately or not, gives a sense that that's exactly what happens here in a little bit. So anyway, so finding the door might be like finding Master Ash's house. You mm -hmm. have to approach it from the right angle. A venomous snake with carnelian eyes crosses their path and disappears in the brush. Uh, carnelian means like reddish-brown gems. And when it does, Ajia gasps. Okay, so Ajia is afraid of snakes. Witches! <laughs> And also, I mean, we've got a we got a snake in a garden here, and we have two people who are in various. I mean, I think that's sort of funny. Severian's not wearing a shirt; her blouse is or or dress is ripped, and so she's part naked. I mean, there there could be some kind of playful. I think it would be playful, you know, hint that we're in some sort of Garden of Eden kind of yeah, yeah. moment here. Actually, she has she she's wearing a peacock pattern. Her dress could could be. Viewed hmm. as kind of a, a fig leaf kind of look, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I do think it's funny that she's the one who ends up being scared of the snake, right? If we're going to try and map yeah. this on the Garden of Eden, she wouldn't be afraid of it. <laughs> it would be <laughs> like she would be in, enticed by it, but instead she's scared. So, um, but yeah, the response to that, uh, I think that he's like, who's afraid now? Yeah, yeah. He tosses her says, oh, don't worry. He's probably more afraid of you are than you are of him. He takes this opportunity. He demands that she answer his questions about how the Smilodon could be so far away. And Agia responds with the famous line that was the motto of the Earth list. I think it was Alice K. Turner's idea. Anyway, the line is, do you think there are answers to everything here? Is that true in the place you come from? Yeah, I love that. It's so... <laughs> so true <laughs> right but at the same time it's precisely the thing that you want to start asking about wolf and that we hope that he does have answers yeah. for everything. well so acknowledges that the citadel and the guilds have inexplicable offices and customs in my home though in these decadent times they are falling out of use there are towers that no one has ever entered and lost rooms and tunnels whose entrances have not been seen so his response to that about answers to things is that that we've lost them, 
right? Right. It's, it's not that there weren't answers. It's just that we've forgotten what they are. That's kind or of again, an, inexplicable customs. Right. Right. That no one, no one really understands why they're used anymore. That's different from saying, right. yeah, but, some things are just mysteries, right? That's a different response than because what she seems to be saying is hey look sometimes things are just mysterious you just don't know what they are and his response is yeah i know what you mean because sometimes we've forgotten these things but the implication i would think is that if you've forgotten them you can figure them out again like there is an answer we just have forgotten what it is and so i mean i know you like to talk about how you feel like a lot about this book is gnostic i mean that's a perfectly Gnostic answer that yes, there are answers to everything. We've just forgotten them. And what we're supposed to be doing is figuring out how to remember. Yeah. Oh, also a very Gnostic notion, by the way. Yeah. But I just think it's really interesting that his response to this is not, yes, some things are simply unknowable or mysterious. And instead his answer implies that, well, we could figure out the truth to all these things. Right. Yes. So Asia points out that, the pylons as and the embankment made it impossible for Severian to see the whole Thalus from the top of the stairs. And when he got down, it was too massive. So just he really doesn't know the dimensions of the place. It could be all an illusion. Now, I don't believe that, but it is interesting that Wolf, the author, has dangled that mm-hmm. possibility in front of us. She says... And even in front of it, could you delimit what you saw? Could you see how big it was? And he couldn't because the glass made it hard to see the edges of the building. My point, though, is delimit. (laughs) This is a rag shop girl who supposedly grew up in a Mm -hmm. rag shop. Agia upbraids Severian. If you don't know how big the phallus is, then she says, how can you ask the questions you do? Or if you have to ask them, can't you understand that I don't necessarily have all the answers? From the sound of the Smilodon's roar, I knew he was far off. Perhaps he's not here at all. Or perhaps the distance is time. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding. Now, I do you need to say we're we're already verging on questions of epistemology and what does she know about, you know, what mysteries or what secret knowledge that people mm-hmm. have? There's also the case that the fact that he keeps asking questions is going to make him harder to con. Right. And she wants him just (laughs) to just to go along with it and and stick with and stay focused. And that's her whole goal in this whole section is just focus on the Avern. Let's get moving. Let's get going. And Severian never will. And I do think that the biggest part of that is just her wanting to keep him moving along. along. Um, And so there's probably there's that. But but it is when we're in this very strange place, we're in exactly the same situation as Severian. We want to know all these different things. By the way, I think it does. He does say it was a faceted dome, which I think you and I had been talking about. Oh, shoot. Speaking of time travel, was this in the future or the past <laughs> when we were talking about the shape well, of the gardens? <laughs> no, no. Well, Athalus has a dome. Athalus does have a dome gotcha. on top. So, and he was looking at it from the top of the stairs. So, Athalus still has a dome. Let's yep. put, just put it that way. But Severian, anyway, is still not convinced from Ashia's answers. He says, When I looked down on this building, I saw a faceted dome. Now when I look up, I see only the sky between the leaves and the vines. And Ajia's got another explanation. The surfaces of the facets are large. It may be that their edges are concealed by the limbs. And this, Craig, is why I don't take any exposition in this book for granted. (laughs) Ajia's explanation is just, to me, 
nonsense on its face. Yeah, I gotta admit, I feel the same way. Like, I mean, <laughs> unless you're talking about only being able to see like a tiny, tiny little bit of the sky here and there, mm-hmm. that would make sense. But if you can ever get any sort of reasonable glimpse at the yeah. sky, it seems like you'd definitely be able to tell if there was a ceiling. Right. So then they wade across a shallow stream and Severian makes the case that, again, her explanation doesn't track. He says, the trees are too thick to see far to either side, but I'm looking down this stream, he says, a freshet, and upstream, I see only more jungle, and downstream, it looks like it empties into a lake. A freshet is a stream that only runs intermittently due to runoff from rain and such. In the stream, there's some kind of iguana like animal in it, a reptile with evil teeth and a thinned back. Later, Severian will identify this as a pelecosaur, a group of animals that lived from 308 to 260 million years ago. This doesn't really help us understand what it would look like beyond that it probably doesn't have a lot in common with anything you've seen in real life. Some of them look like big sluggy salamanders. The most distinctive pelecosaur is the Dimetrodon, those finback dinosaurs we saw in old movies in the 50s, like Journey to the Center of the Earth. Severian takes out Terminus S, fearing that the creature's going to dart under their feet. Agia tries again, though, to answer his question. It is also said that the walls of these places are specula, that is, mirrors, whose reflective power creates the appearance of vast space. Mm. Still no, Craig. Now, Severian is going to recall a story at this point, one that Thecla told him about Father Aniri and the House Absolute that is going to direct us to what is actually going on, I think. All right. So he says, I once knew a woman who had met Father Aniri. She told me a tale about him. Want to hear it? And Ajia says, suit yourself. And Severian writes, actually, I was the one who wanted to hear the story, and I did suit myself. I told it to myself in the recesses of my mind, hearing it there hardly less than I had heard it when Thecla's hands, white and cold as lilies taken from a grave filled with rain, lay clasped between my own. That is a goth image right there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, a few things before we get on. First, Craig, When Severian first met Thecla and he remarked that her hands were cold, you opined, and I agreed that her hands were cold because she was scared. But here we kind of get a hint that her hands might always be cold, ice cold. Yeah. Do you have any subsequent thoughts on that? Mm, Nothing that would be based in the text, really. No. Well, it could be, you know, they're very large. Have bad circulation. I don't know. Yeah, they could have a circulation issue. So instead, it's the lilies taken from a grave filled with rain. I mean, oh, that's that you. That's the part you lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's very good. But I just, I, whereas I said, her hands are cold. <laughs> I'm so deep. <laughs> Next, I think this scene, Craig, gives us another window into Severian's so-called incorruptible memory. Mm-hmm. That for him, it's like time travel. It's available for him to access. Even for the first Severian's memories are available because he says he can remember when he remembered things differently. But he has to make an effort to yeah. reaccess it, to travel back to that time 
And when he does, it is as real, as vivid to him as if he were there. For example, he said in chapter 11 that when he wants to remember his elevation ceremony, he remembers first the scene where Catherine character is standing before him. And then he remembers forward and back from that point. Yeah. And also the fact that he's going to literally retell the story to himself. Now, mm-hmm. granted, maybe he doesn't actually have to do that. And and it's just a, you know, a way of doing that. But I, I do think it's true that when his memory really gets going, it seems to be something that we've talked about this before is really all overwhelming and, and overpowering. And also the fact that he has to sort of retell the story to himself means that it's not just like a big information bank. Which right. Is yeah. Kind of how I think access. a lot of us. Yeah. A lot of us think about it when he says that. And he's actually, as he's remembering this, he's actually muttering to himself. Do you yeah. talk to yourself, Craig? I do all the uh, time. Yeah. Yeah. My <laughs> wife is always interrogating me about what are you thinking about? I see you talking to yourself. <laughs> so here's the story as Thecla told it and as Severian remembers it, as if she's standing there telling it. So now we're going to get the infamous. Father Neri's Mirrors uh, story, which has confused many, many people. And we'll get into the details here. Um, But maybe just to step back a little bit, you know, the reasons why I think this is confusing and and also what I think a lot of people typically think that the passage and that this chapter is trying to do. You know, I think most people feel that this is kind of world building from the science fiction side. Right, that that we're going to get something of an explanation of how faster than light travel works, and how you can have possibly different universes working here, and basically start to explain some of the quote unquote magic of this world in at least vaguely scientific terms. And I think that's how eventually a lot of people read the chapter is that it's mainly making certain other things seem plausible in the mm-hmm. story. I actually want to go eventually a different route to think more about that idea, like I said, with that second sentence about how what the mirrors do is really confuse the difference between a reflection and reality. Yeah. Does that seem right to you? Like what most, yeah. how most people respond to this? And then it's more a question of figuring out, well, does the way he describes the physics, is that right? Is that relativity in the right way? Is that actually possible the way you he's eventually going to talk about how light works. And so a lot of people get, I won't say hung up, but really focus on the sort of technical details. And I want to focus a little more on, on what it's kind of saying about other things that are happening in the chapter. Well, it is. I mean, I don't think it's, I think it is technical details, but I think Wolf is trying to let us in on the mechanics. I mean, yeah. Oh, it can, and it can do all these things. He's helpfully setting down rules for the way this world is going to work because uh, at some point Jonas is going to walk into those mirrors. Mm-hmm. Well, what oh happens? yeah. We're going to have to figure out what happens at that point. At some point, um, you know, who, who are these people that walk behind those mirrors? So, and I don't want to make it seem sound like it's either, or I just, one thing that does kind of bug me when I see a lot of people talk about this one is that it seems like they jump real quickly into hard science fiction mode. Mm-hmm. And it kind of means that, you kind of lose track of some other things that are going on here. So, right. That's it. Okay. So Thecla was 13 and she had a friend named Damnina. Damnina was a pretty girl who looked several years younger than she really was in exultant terms, I suppose, because a 13 year old exultant girl is still pretty tall. So, you know, maybe she was still shorter. Thecla said, 
Perhaps that's why he took a fancy to her, Father Aniri. It's established here and elsewhere that Aniri really takes a fancy to young children, but especially little girls. A lot of readers have seen a lot of creepiness in this attraction, but you have mm-hmm. to remember that Aniri is an alien. His attraction to us, if it is an attraction, would be more even creepier than you can imagine. It could be like an attraction to a puppy or something. Yeah. And another thing that some people have tried to wonder if, oh, shoot, uh, the painter. Oh, oh Fetchin. Fetchin. That the way that Fetchin is described in the story that the old man in the Alzabo house says makes it seem like, oh, well, was that supposed to be Father Aniri in a different version? Because he's sort of monkeyish too. And that mm-hmm. whole story is about how he uses his artistic power basically to seduce a girl. Right. So yeah, exactly. So you certainly, if you do think that Fetchin is Aniri, then you've definitely got that. Yeah. I've gone back these last couple of weeks trying to find out who first suggested the Lewis Carroll reference to Father Aniri. Here we have a girl. We have mirrors. We have Father Aniri, who ha- seems to have a obsession with a young girl. And I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's... It could be, and he tells her a, a weird a story feeling. that messes yeah. with logic in a, in a weird way. Yeah, Right. Um, oh, you, you've posted on the uh, Gene Wolf Appreciation Society page a riddle that Wolf uh, posted in the New York Review of Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. Has anyone ever solved that? I have no idea. People have put forward all kinds of things, and honestly, I don't have any clue. <laughs> in Alice in Wonderland, there's, the, or maybe it's through the Looking Glass, there is the riddle: How is a raven like a writing desk? Mm-hmm. And people just you know, harass Carol all the time about what the answer to that riddle was, and he finally published an answer that said. Uh, something like they both have few notes, mostly flat, and their front <laughs> ends and back ends are rarely mistaken for each other. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, a lot of people have come up with a lot of answers to that riddle that are also really good answers that say, oh, yeah, that could obviously be it. For instance, uh, Poe wrote on them both. That was That's a very famous one. But Carol said that when he first wrote it, he didn't have an answer to it at all. It was just a a silly thing to say, which makes me wonder, (laughs) did did Wolf have an answer to his riddle? Yeah. And I don't know. The things in that riddle seem like they're cobbled together almost. So it makes me think that maybe he did have one. Whereas why is a raven like a writing desk? I mean, it's, it rolls off the tongue really well for the, the way the. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, I'll put a link to that, that uh, Facebook uh, post, but anyway, Father Neary's attraction to little girls is ostensibly kind of creepy, even though Wolf probably has a secret plot reason for why this would be the case. But who knows? The Hirogramatis are shape changers, so who knows where else we'll find this guy. Unlike other people we hear about in the House Absolute, Domnina makes no other appearance in the Book of the New Sun, as far as I know. Does or she? Or Earth of the New Sun. Or does she? <laughs> well, that's one thing I think because the Pellerine priestess later on is called Domnicelli. Some people have wondered. If, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I yeah. don't know. I I don't think so. Uh, I don't remember any other details in the text that would really connect her. 
yeah, I wish I wish I would know if if I knew that Domnina was a was a little girl form of Domnicelli. Wow. So the story goes like this. Thecla and Domnina are horsing around in the Hall of Meaning. This is a hall. It doesn't say hallway. It could be either a corridor or a foyer, vestibule, lobby that's an entryway into the building or to a room, or it could be some sort of room that's open to the public and used for public gatherings. What you think it is changes what you imagine when it's described. She says it has two mirrors that extend to the ceiling and are three or four L's wide. That's like 10 or 15 feet, I guess. The mirrors face each other and are about a dozen strides apart on a marble floor. I take a dozen strides to be 24 feet. So that would be as much as 100 feet apart. But elsewhere, Severian might have used strides in place of feet. That's why I say that. Yeah. In which case, they are you know 40 to 50 feet apart. If it's a big room, then the mirrors are hanging in the middle of the room, much like uh, the Chamber of Presence that we're going to get to. If it's a foyer or a corridor, then they're hanging on the wall. I, I personally imagine a corridor. Now, why it's called the Hall of Meaning? My theory that is that it's a Wolfian transliteration from the Byzantine location, but I don't know what that is. Honestly, when I read it, I always think it seems like the perfect image of some kind of postmodern or post-structuralist view of meaning where there is no <laughs> real thing. There's just infinite <laughs> reflections going on forever. Oh, I mean, yeah. If you're familiar with sort of academic post-structuralist stuff, that would be a, a perfect thing for Baudrillard to talk about right there. So. Well, now, the interest of this hall to these young girls is that these two mirrors are kind of a an infinity glass. That is, if you look at yourself... And you see yourself, you see yourself reflected behind you into infinity, both in front and behind. Thecla and Domnina like checking themselves out. They're spinning around in their new camisas, uh, you know, probably nightgowns. They moved a couple of large candelabras to the left side of each mirror so that they were opposite corners. Wolf has a reputation for not adding exposition for no reason. Do you have any guesses for why this? was worth being pointed out? I'm uh, not exactly sure. The other thing I know is that sometimes he over-explains things that are <laughs> inessential. And On I was wondering if hand. this is one of those things. Yeah, I mean, a bit of a sort of, you know, bait and switch kind of thing where he's like, I'm right. going to really draw your attention. Like, like the one thing that always got me was the, it's the scene when, when they get to the house absolute and the descriptions of the architecture of the room where, when Severian's looking for Terminus Est mm -hmm. and, you know, he gets really into like, oh, there was a symmetrical design. And so I knew that if I walked to the other side, there would probably be a closet there like this. It's just like, that's the least of the things that I'm worried about right now. Cause you just told me that there was a dude hiding out in the bookshelves in the closet <laughs> who just disappeared. And instead we're getting a little architecture, you know, discussion. So, but anyway, enough of my curiositous earthuses about that area. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So they're so busy looking at themselves. They don't notice that father Aniri has walked up to them until he's right behind them. So it's too late to run and hide as they normally would have. We're going to learn in the short story, The Cat, that Aniri likes to give toys to kids and tell stories. So this must have been, you know, particular to them for whatever reason that they would run and hide from Aniri. Anyway, 
the cat was published the year after Wolf finished the Citadel of the Autark. So maybe he was reconsidered in life in the house absolute since shadow of the torture was published, you know, three years earlier. Uh, Neri was not much taller than the girls were, but then they're exultant girls. So they're not exactly short. Let's say he's five, six or, you know, some equivalent. He had on an iridescent robe, multicolored, but if you looked right at it, it faded to gray. Yeah, which is awesome, which is an amazing way to describe. It is iridescent, but if you look at it, it's not at all. Right. So um, the difference between what it is and what it seems like. Yeah. It looked like that the robe had been dyed in mist. That's such a cool idea. Yeah. And Neri gives them some grandfatherly advice. You must be wary, children, of looking at yourselves like that. There's an imp who waits in silvered glass and creeps into the eyes of those who look into it. So he's talking about vanity, I mm-hmm. suppose. Yeah. I don't think we're supposed to take it literally. Thecla blushes, but Domnina says, I think I've seen him. Is he shaped like a tear, all gleaming? This gets Aniri's interest. Thecla can tell that he's startled, but he doesn't show any reaction. Without hesitation, he says, no, that is someone else, Dulcina. Dulcina means sweetheart or sweetie. It comes from Don Quixote. And here he says, did you see him plainly? No? Then come to my presence chamber tomorrow, a little after Nons, and I'll show him to you. So a few things here. Nons is, you know, practically 3 p.m. It's the time that Christ died on the cross. Um, the presence chamber again. It's not clear why it's called that, but here's my pure, wild speculation. Curiositas Urthus. There was a consistatorium in the Imperial Palace in Byzantium. It's where they held the most important political council meetings. So Perhaps Aniri was using the room to confer with other Yasadis about his plots on Earth. Could well be. A presence chamber is also just kind of the name for, you know, where you meet guests, right? Especially like is a, it? an official. Yeah. Is that a real term? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I read it in um, sort of late medieval and, and early Renaissance uh, work that it's kind of not necessarily like the, it's not the court, like a king wouldn't have a present chamber, but some other sort of official or something like that. Like it's not your office. It's sort of where you would, where you would greet people. And the term is actually presence chamber. I read it's, which, which means sounds to me like the room where I am. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I think it's where you would go and you would actually talk in presence in the presence of, of this person is kind of the idea. But yeah, I mean, I just like the idea that even if that's the sort of traditional name for something like this, it's also the presence chamber. And when she gets there, there's a thing that's not really fully present there. That's just yeah. fun, fun irony. Yeah. So finally, Aniri promises to show this person that she saw, but unless he's the fish, we're never going to have that explained. Tear shaped and gleaming. Do you get what's what's that a reference to? I've wondered about this, and it depends kind of on how you think about a tear. A tear, like a fish, you could say is tear shaped if you cut off the tail. You know, a fish could mm-hmm. be basically tear shaped. But yeah, I don't know. Well, let's talk about that when we get to the actual fish. Like, okay. are there different creatures? But 
because I it's never clear. It's never directly answered. But so the girls are anxious over this. Domnina has no intention of going to see Father Neri, and Thecla stays with her all day to back her up. But a little before Nons, or is that the way you pronounce it? No, Nonis. I'm actually not sure. I mean, I know one thing too about it is that it's um, they they do mention. Aren't there? There are two other prayer times that I think get mentioned. There's Vespers and and I thought they mentioned one other one, but it's it's just kind of a cool usage of how to tell time. Yeah, that's not just a number. But anyway, a servant shows up in uniform and got her. Thecla hangs out on a windowsill for the rest of the afternoon, waiting for her to come back. She has paper dolls, soubriettes, columbines, coryphees, harlequinus, figurantes, the usual thing, she says. She plays with them, colors them with crayons. She calls the crayons wax pencils. Um, we might as well mention, uh, soubriette is uh, like a Mae West type in, in theater. Columbine is a servant girl type, probably like the best friend of the ingenue. A Harlequina, well, you know, the Harlequina is the comic relief character. In the movie Pretty in Pink, John Cryer, you know, Ducky, he, he might have been a Harlequin. So Harlequina <laughs> is like the female version of that. A Corafi is the lead ballet dancer. A figurante, one of the ballet dancers who's not the lead. But this terminology demonstrates, again, how central theater is to the Commonwealth culture. Yeah. And they're, again, all female roles here. And yeah. again, sort of just to emphasize how much this chapter has to do with fake things in reality, mm -hmm. this is sort of a double fake, right? It's a it's a fake version of someone who's playing a part, right, of, right. of a dramatic thing. So it's, it's sort of layers of pretending and, dare I say, reflections of <laughs> something more real. <laughs> So finally, Thecla has to go to supper. She figures Domnina has been killed or sent away from the house absolute. <laughs> Still, you know, a girl's got to eat. But Domnina shows up just as she's finishing her soup. The first course, I guess. Her mother's servitrix goes to the door and lets her in. A servitrix is a female servant, so a maid or something like that. When Domnina enters, her face is as white as Thecla's dolls. She's crying, and Thecla's nurse comforts her, and then she tells her story. Now, we're going to go through the story, but I'm just going to tell you right now, um, the question is whether we ever she ever meets that tear-shaped guy in the mirror or not. I guess that's the big question, right? Right, and we know that in what gets described, she doesn't, right? She sees She'll see the fish, and uh -huh. that's the only creature and even then it's not complete so far as we know but yeah i think the one thing that's strange is that she seems really freaked out but then nothing that thecla actually explains here right. seems totally freaky i mean uh, the whole thing is kind of odd yeah but is it enough to make her white as a sheep right what happened at that point so one thing just to point out to that is pretty obvious but this is a really weird way to tell a story right so you've got severian remembering thecla remembering Domnina telling a story, right? All these different layers. Of, and he's telling it out loud though. Right. Yeah. To himself. To himself. Right. Which is sort of like <laughs> he's his own. Yeah. So three or four different layers. Again, you can think of it this way. Those are all kind of like reflections of, mm. of 
the story that's being told. Again, it's something like it's 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 the thematic thing that's all through this chapter that there are always these different reflections and versions and retellings and and you don't have the actual story. You have how someone else got the story told to them, but then you have how that story was told to them. And what's uh, the one thing you could say is that, well, that makes it totally unreliable and that you have no idea if that's true. It could be that at the same time, even with all of those refractions and reflections, we're still going to learn something that Severian can definitely apply to the situation. And I'll, I'll kind of say more about that later, but but the truth still comes through, right. I think. Uh, the servant who came for her, was, you think this was Odello? It was Adila who came for Sancha and the cat. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it it could be. I don't. In this case, I don't know if he had thought it out. I mean, but in, by the time you get to the cat, maybe yeah, maybe he went back and looked at the story and was like, oh, I'll just I'll put some actual characters to these people. Well, they go through a lot of hallways that Dumnina didn't know existed. They imagined at the time that they were quite familiar with all the rooms and passages of the House Absolute. Right. Uh, of course, you know. That would be impossible. And also we know that some of the some of the hallways are hidden behind paintings and Yeah. So this is really kind of the first mention we get of the secret house. Right. I the, the reason I like this so much is that these two girls had grown up in this place and yet there was a whole you know, they'd spent their entire life here and yet there was a whole side to it that they just never knew existed. Right. And also House Absolute extends to Nessus and maybe the Citadel. But this was, you know, apparently a hallway well within their assumed domain. So now they get to Eniri's presence chamber. She walks in. She hears the servant close and bolt the door behind her. There's no other apparent exit. It's a large room with curtains on the wall of solid dark red and no furniture except some huge faces, taller and wider than a man. In the center of the room is a little eight-sided room. The walls themselves are octagons and are painted with labyrinths. Maybe they were painted. Maybe they were circuit boards. I don't know. Over the little roofless room is there burned the brightest white lamp, bluish white lamp that she had ever seen. That makes me think of the claw mm-hmm. as if the, as if they're drawing from the same energy. And why Why eight? Why an octagon? Do you have any sense of why it's octagonal? Well, it can't be six. Do you have, yeah, you have three sides. Yeah, it could be uh, hexagonal. I guess it yeah. could be anything with an even number. Even number, yeah. So that they can reflect directly on each other. But I didn't know if there was some other, any, anyone into numerology out there? Well, there I mean, there's, there's a whole thinking of, of numbers in uh, theology. Uh, well, they, they call it theogony. Yeah. And eight is a number of new beginnings. Eight is the number of, of the occupants of on Noah's Ark. Eight is the day that Christ resurrected. Seven is a perfect number. Six is the number of fallen humans. So, but all that doesn't necessarily apply to anything about this. No, I'm trying to think if there, if I can come up with something. No, the only thing I thought of is that if it was like a cube, like four, I've been in, you know, art installations where it's, you know, there are four walls and you have the mirrors and it's kind of, it gets really confusing, but if you had eight, that would be super confusing. Like, like just to know where things are. 
Yeah. Um, and what edges. So I didn't know if he just picked a number that was really hard to conceptualize what it would actually look like. You know, like maybe six, four or six walls. I could kind of think what it would be like. But by the time you get to eight, I'm just like, I can't, I literally can't visually imagine it. <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't know if that was kind of the, the purpose there, but I oh, don't know. It could you know. be. Yeah. I don't know. Somebody has a good idea about octagons and eight. Let me know. Yeah. So anyway, but it's a, it's a room, an eight side room with walls that are eight sides, right? Mm-hmm. I also do agree that the blue, the blue light has to be connected, I think, to the cloth. And, and yes, something about that super bright, super powerful energy. Like he does suggest too in a second that I guess maybe he doesn't, but I wonder if there has to be something about the quality of the light. He talks about how perfect the mirrors have to be, mm-hmm. but I also wonder if there has to be something about the light. I think, I think the colors kind of imply that there should be. Once they're in the room with it, doesn't that mess up the reflection? That was the one thing that always bugged me about. Like, once, <laughs> once you get in there, don't you start interacting, interfering with the light? Well, it's already started. Maybe maybe you can't be in there when it's starting. When Domnina heard the door lock behind her, she ran to one of the curtains, hoping that there'd be a door behind them. She only looks behind one when one of the eight octagonal walls open up and out comes Father Aniri. Behind him, she can see the little room. She sees a bottomless hole filled with light. And I guess that's the way of describing a room that has perfect mirrors. Yeah, all mirrors. It just keeps going and going and right. going. He says, there you are. You've come just in time. The fish is nearly caught. You can watch the setting of the hook and learn by what means his golden scales are to be meshed in our landing net. He takes her arm and guides her into the enclosure. Now, Aji, at this point, as we know, she says, you're talking to yourself. I can hear you muttering behind me. That's so so much like what Emily is saying to me. (laughs) He says, I'm telling myself the story I mentioned. You didn't want to hear it, and I wanted to listen to it again. I feel for you, Severian. And he adds, besides, it concerns the mirrors of Father Aniri, and it may contain hints that are useful to us. So first, just, saying just about why why narrate the break right there. I mean, on the one hand, it does break up the story, and it sets up a little bit of tension, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's good because it's the moment she looks inside and sees this bottomless hole, and then he stops for a second, you know, and it, it's a it's a cool, dramatic way to, to make that going. But also what he does is he reminds you right there that, oh yeah, even this story is something that's being told and retold and retold. And I feel like it's as, it's as much for that sort of reminder about how the truth of the story is something that's being reflected and reflected just as much as it is just a kind of a cool way to just make a tiny little bit of suspense. But it also clarifies the mechanics of what's going on with Severian's mm-hmm. memory. He, yes, exactly. It would be easy to assume, okay, yes, I remembered this story. And now I'm going to relate it to you, what I remembered. But he don't. He has to experience it again in order to remember it. And there also is that one little detail that's easy to overlook that that they're on this path in a public garden, but the path has been almost completely overgrown. Right. Like that's that's one thing, one detail that makes me really think that, yeah, they are traveling somewhere else because now they're in a path where stuff is growing wild. Right. And yeah. instead of it being curated, just like there's a those there are the curators. Um, but here you have a path that's not well tended anymore, which makes yeah. me think that, yeah, they're somewhere else. Yeah. Or somewhere else as well. So Severian keeps uh, telling the story. He remember he's recording this as he remembers of a, a time when he was remembering something. <laughs> so yep. in the center of the enclosure, there was a haze of yellow light. 
It was never still. It moved up and down from side to side with rapid flickerings, never leaving a space that might have been four spans high and four long. It did indeed remind her of a fish. Four spans, that's like a two feet cube. So it's not big. It does remind her of a fish. Unlike, quote, the faint flagge she had glimpsed in the mirrors of the Hall of Meaning. Now, you'll like this. Flagge are familiar spirits. It seems to have been coined by the alchemist Paracelsus. Supposedly, it is from the Latin that means flaming ones. Wolf has a lot of Paracelsus references, particularly in the Book of the Long Sun. But here we have it in the Book of the New Sun. Anyway, according to Paracelsus, you can see a flag in a mirror and you can see the person they are connected to. According to Paracelsus, they inhabit mirrors and you can communicate with them and learn just about anything. So anyway, this thing moves like a fish swimming around in an invisible bowl. I wish like a fish, but I just, you know, we can't have everything. Right. <laughs> so, so mirror spirits, um, really strange. And I mean, one thing we should call out here too, is that there's a story in Borges' book of imaginary beings called the fauna of mirrors in the book there. He says there's an ancient Chinese legend, which says that mirrors are actually portals to other worlds and mm-hmm. that, at one time people would go back and forth, but then one, Oh shoot. Yellow. Was it the yellow King or the yellow emperor? I forgot his name, but he, he casts a spell and basically puts all the, the denizens of the mirrors to sleep. But one day they're going to come back awake again and come out of the mirrors and take us over. And they're going to be tired of being reflections, but want to be real things. Um, Which is kind of a creepy story. And I have to admit, so I I don't have, but it's like a, it's like a, it's like a King Arthian. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. But, but it's all like, it's like every mirror has its own little world or something like that is is one of the implications of Mm -hmm. the way Borges tells the story at least. But yeah, I admit mirrors creep me out. (laughs) Like I'm not, they, they always have. And, and I've always, it's not like bloody Mary. It's not like I had, you know, a bad experience with, with somebody doing the bloody Mary game when I was a kid, (laughs) they just always been weird to me. And, and part of the reason why I was, I don't know. Do you remember this old Disney movie called watcher in the woods? Yes. Okay, so there's a scene in there where what happens is the whole premise is that a little uh, one girl, one teenager has been caught in some other dimension. And one of the times that they first see her is uh, a mirror cracks and, and it cracks in this little triangle and you can kind of see in the triangle to the other dimension and you see her blindfolded. And that image just creeped me out as a kid. So <laughs> I blame that for why I'm scared of, of mirrors. But the, the idea that there are creatures who live in there who... Sometimes you can see, but sometimes it's just, uh, I don't know. Sorry. This, this is all very, <laughs> this is my visceral reaction to, to some. <laughs> well, Craig, what's worse than, than a house that has a lot of mirrors is a house where they've got all the mirrors turned against to the wall. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> um, but one thing here is that it suggests that Domnina had seen the faint flagge she had glimpsed in the mirrors before. Like, is that the imp or is the imp something different? You know, like she said, is that the tear-shaped thing that she had seen? Um, because she says this reminded her of a fish more than the things that she had seen before. Well, it obviously looks different than what it looked before, but I don't know. It could be. It could be something as inhuman as what we're looking at here. It, it was tear-shaped, right? And gleaming. So mm-hmm. that would kind of fit. Yeah. But 
I don't know. Aniri closes the wall behind them. All the walls are mirrored on the inside. So you can see Aniri and herself and the fish thing reflected over and over into infinity. The fish seems to her to be formed from the bright light above, converging between the mirrors. Father Aniri said that this is the being that she saw in the mirrors of the Hall, hall of Meaning. She said, he says, here you see him. And okay. they bring up his cloak again, which I think is cool. And, and again, it's kind of that thing of it's like this weird light and color that you can't directly see. Right. Which is, again, a very strange thing. But but just the fact that he mentions it again um, and that, that that weird thing that you can't see was being reflected over and over again. I mean, it just gets to be this sort of paradoxical kind of weird image. Right. Right. Well, I've, I've always wondered. They call it a fish, but... I, what would it have looked like when it finally finished? He says he calls it a fish, but I don't get the idea that it really would end up being a, a, fish. Like a fish. No, I feel like the, the word fish is because of how it seems to kind of flop around because <laughs> the light, the light does its weird thing. At least that's, that's always been my assumption that how it moves, it seemed to more move like a fish than necessarily be the shape of a fish. Right. Um, so, but then there's the next line too. Um, there seemed to be another girl, her own face peering over her shoulder, then another and another, each with a smaller face behind it, and then and so on, and at infinitum, an endless chain of fainter Domnina faces. But the way that he initially starts that is there was another girl, right? It's not right. like my reflection. It was another girl. Mm-hmm. Whereas the reflection is not just right. a copy of me, but instead the first thing is it's a second girl. And to think about reflections as an actual different entity rather than just a, a copy of you is a different way than I think we normally think about mirrors. So, and that's the way he describes it there. Well, Aniri says something about the flagge that is a bit like the Borges description of the inhabitants of mirrors. He says, the ancients who knew this process at least as well as we, and perhaps better, considered the fish the least important and most common of the inhabitants of mirrors. And Aniri does not dismiss Paracelsus. He explains, however, that the ancients were mistaken in believing that the spirits they summoned were ever present within the mirrors. But eventually the ancients got practical. How can you use the mirrors to travel astronomical distances? And Domnina asks if she can put her hand in the fish. And Aniri says, at this stage, you may, child. Later, I would not advise it. <laughs> so when she does, she feels a sliding warmth. By the way, one one tiny thing I forgot to mention about the Borges story. He does say that the fish is going to be the first creature to come out of the mirrors. So it's another moment where, yeah, Wolf probably does have that part of He's the book. He's pulling it, yeah. Yeah, in Borges' fond of mirrors, I think it's really interesting because it's told from the point of view of all these Italian priests. Uh, with the Italian fathers with Italian names, which fits with Father Aniri. Father Fonticeo of the Society of Jesus planned a study of the superstitions and misinformation of the common people of Canton. In the preliminary outline, he noted that the fish was a shifting and shining creature that nobody had ever caught, but that many said they had glimpsed in the depths of mirrors. Uh, This father died in 1736, and the work begun by his pen remained unfinished. Some years later, Herbert Allen Giles took up the interrupted task. According to Giles, 
Belief in the fish is part of a larger myth that goes back to legendary times of the Yellow Emperor. In those days, the world of mirrors and the world of men were not, as they are now, cut off from each other. They were, besides, quite different. Neither beings, nor colors, nor shapes were the same. Both kingdoms, the specular and the human, lived in harmony. You could come and go through mirrors. One night, the mirror people invaded the earth. Their power was great, but at the end of the bloody warfare, the magic arts of the Yellow Emperor prevailed. He repulsed the invaders, imprisoned them in their mirrors, and forced them the task of repeating, as though in a kind of dream, all the actions of men. He stripped them of their power and their forms and reduced them to mere slavish reflections. Nevertheless, a day will come when the magic spell will be shaken off. The first to awaken will be the fish. Deep in the mirror, we will perceive a very faint line, and the color of this line will be like no other. Later on, other shapes will begin to stir. Little by little, they will differ from us. Little by little, they will not imitate us. They will break through the barriers of glass or metal, and this time will not be defeated. Side by side with these mirror creatures, the creatures of water will join in the battle. In Yunnan, they do not speak of the fish, but of the tiger of the mirror. Others believe that in advance of the invasion, we will hear from the depths of the mirrors the clatter of weapons. Well, it's all there. <laughs> Pretty cool. Even with yeah. the water creatures are going to be their allies. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So definitely Wolf had this in mind when he was working in this. Exactly. Chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it, I don't think it's like the key to decode everything, but it's just really cool to see again how that Borges book really influenced what's going exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. So. So Aniri explains, however, that the ancients were mistaken in believing that the spirits they summoned were ever present within the mirrors. But eventually the ancients got practical. So which ancients do you think he's talking about? I mean, I guess well, they if... must be, they, they're humans. I mean, these are, the the Hirogamatis are somewhat descendants of humanity, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So the ancients to him might be future people as far as yeah. Damnina is concerned, or they might be, you know, even earlier, who knows? So these ancients would be people who stopped caring about the creatures who lived in the mirrors and started using it for travel, which already seems way beyond whatever we are right now, because right, then they'd yeah. be working on mirror <laughs> travel, which is eventually, as he's going to explain, faster than light travel. Well, people are, you know, traveling between stars, though, at this point. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I mean, and he, he does kind us, of imply so. that it's impossible to do that with under normal circumstances. Yeah. But then you'd also don't get the idea that there's as nearly as many people out there as there are on earth. So I don't know. That's my understanding. The one thing I do like is that he said with their false belief that the creatures they summoned were ever present in the depths of the glass. And he says, we don't have to concern ourselves with that, but he does say that's a false <laughs> idea. Right. And that's also, right. that's also, I thought the whole reason that, or the, that these creatures were what he was going to talk about, but the idea here is that this creature is, they don't live. Now he could be saying they don't live necessarily in the glass itself. That's what that could be saying. But if so, what does Domnina see? I know. In and the so, Hall of Meaning. 
if they're not in the glass, they would have to be in her eye. They would have to literally be in her eye. Unless they mean he's trying to be very literal there. Like they don't actually live in the glass. The, instead, the mirrors are like a portal to bring them from some other universe or something like that. He mm. could be sort of splitting hairs like that's hard to say. But the thing that I want to point out is that he, he could also just be saying that these things don't exist previously, that they actually are called into being through this process. And that's something that he actually kind of says later on too. Because one thing I will say that there's a lot of discussion back on the Earth list about whether these creatures are like he kind of says in Earth of the New Sun, the Apports who are where it's like creatures who come from some other dimension or or he even says from a lower version like Abaddon. I think they use the term Abaddon mm-hmm. once in, in New Sun um, that it's like a lower world that these creatures kind of get pulled in from something like that. And it could be that, but then there's also going to be a section he'll talk about in a little bit where it's not that these are summoned from some other place, but that they're actually called into existence, period, by this, well, which is being, a totally different uh, idea. What he's suggesting here, though, is that those, even those creatures that are being created in the sales, they're being, basically being created and duplicated from someplace else. They're not pulling them through. Well, right? we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll get to it because yeah. one of his last sentences kind of gets into that. So, Right, exactly. So Domnina asks if she can put her hand in the fish. He says, well, at this stage you may, child, but later I would not advise it. When she does it, she feels a sliding warmth. She asks if this is the way the Herodules come to Earth. She knows all about Herodules. Well, she says cacogens. Well, so. yes, but she knows <laughs> that they're not from here. Right. And cacogens, remember, is just, it's like the a catch-all term, I assume derogatory in one way or another, for aliens or off-worlders. And Which they, seems, yes, they've just, yeah. they're disguising themselves to look hideous because they don't want to be worshipped. But so Inari explains that this is like a toy version of the mirrors that Herodules used to travel. So maybe they do travel in some way like this, but they are still useful to do this fish thing. And Maybe you can call up other things, but even toy versions like this can be dangerous. He says, this might, I think be a hint of why Domnina came back crying. Domnina thought that to travel to the stars, you'd have to sit on the mirror and Aniri smiles at this. And even though she knows he means well by it, the smile did not make her feel good. And now we get an explanation. I, I'll probably get something wrong in this description because the subject matter wasn't covered in my Bachelor of Arts degree <laughs> in English literature. When something moves close to light speed, its mass increases. It doesn't just get bigger, just more massive. And if it moved fast enough, it would become as massive as a planet. And in theory, it would become infinitely massive at light speed. And that never happens, but in theory, it would. So nothing can move as fast as light speed, and even the speed of light is too slow to travel between the stars. He uses the example of candles, and Domnina suggested they use a bigger candle. She's thinking of the Pascal candles that, that they use every spring, candles that are thicker than a man's thigh. But Aniri explains that no matter the size, the light from a candle moves just as fast. Now, incidentally, Pascal candles, these are used for Easter celebrations. So seeing them every spring is significant. The word Pascal 
comes from the Hebrew word Pasha, meaning Passover. The last supper in the Gospels was a Passover supper. And Jesus was crucified on Friday of Passover. And then the term Pascal links us directly to the Pascal mystery, which is a paradox, you know, like relativity and quantum theory that Aniri is explaining. It's the mystery of how everyone can be redeemed through the redemptive death of Jesus Christ, which brings us back again to how earth is resurrected through the test that Severian, a single man, endures, right? Mm -hmm. So Aniri goes on, even light is weightless so that things without much weight are called light. When light moves, it presses against what it falls on, just like wind, which we can't see, pushes the arms of a mill. It sounds like he's talking about the solar wind, but I don't think the solar wind is light. It's charged particles. I don't really understand this. This is what I understand to be the case. So perhaps Aniri is talking about a futuristic understanding of light that is like the solar wind. Anyway, he put the mirror's face to face in his little presence chamber, and the light bounces between the mirrors. If the light hits itself in the middle, it's annihilated. But if the mirrors are perfect and the distance between them is just right, the images don't ever meet. Instead, one light wave comes up just behind the other. And if the light is just normal light, nothing happens because it's just random light. But if the light is, quote, from a coherent source, and I guess the bluish white light above them is a coherent source, it forms the image reflected in the mirror. The orientation of the wave fronts is the same because the image is the same. I think Wolf is moving into poetic Star Trek nonsense at this point. But Aniri says, since nothing can exceed the speed of light in our universe, the accelerated light... Um, how was it accelerated? The accelerated light leaves it and enters another universe. When it slows again, why does it slow? It re-enters ours, naturally at some other location. So, and I think, you know, I agree that I think we're getting into to alternate physics at this point. Um, uh -huh. The stuff about relativity earlier seems right now he's saying okay well what if if we have the yeah. these perfect mirrors that can so what he said before the way i take the physics here is okay light doesn't have mass we know that but light does have properties of things that are kind of like mass like it'll push on stuff he'll say like there is a kind of pressure that it can have so light can even have pressure on other light that's why if two pieces of light meet they don't just pass through each other they cancel each other out so then he comes up with now imagine that you have two images that instead of canceling each other out one kind of pushes the other now here's the trick though is that if one piece of light pushes another piece of light oh okay that's why they're accelerated because what another light has come up behind it. Right. Now it can't go faster than the speed of light, right? So if you if if one piece of light is pushing on another one, um, then it creates this kind of paradox where the one light is now supposed to be going faster than the speed of light. That's impossible. So in order to keep that from happening, what happens is that 
light goes to a different universe and kind of pops okay. in somewhere else. I think that's kind of a, the, what he's saying. Yeah, that almost makes sense. Okay. Right. In in the Star Trek physics kind of kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the body leaves our universe in one place and it reenters the universe somewhere else. Right. And so all of that so far is kind of a cool way he's come up with to explain how, you know, faster than light travel could work here. But to me, that's not the important part. But instead, it's the next part that is totally the most important thing here. Because yeah. Damina says, is it just a reflection? And she was looking at the fish. But also what she could be saying is that light that gets pushed into another universe. Is that just a reflection of something? Mm -hmm. And then he says, no, eventually it will be a real being. If we don't darken the lamp or shift the mirrors for a reflected image to exist without an object to originate it violates the laws of our universe. And therefore an object will be brought into existence. Okay, so that's like a whole bunch of jumps right there, right, <laughs> from what he said before, because now he's mm -hmm. talking about, okay, well, the, that light that maybe gets pushed from another universe, it seems like it might be reflecting something. And what he's kind of saying here is if we can make a reflection of something, the laws of the universe say that you can't have a reflection without there being a real thing. Um, and so it's literally him saying, what if we make the reflection first? That'll bring the object into existence. Now, that's paradox, right? It can't... It, that can't be possible because a reflection is only something that comes from something else. Right. Like right. think of it. Shadow seems like a good thing, right? A shadow is something that comes because something else blocks it. But by the same logic, if you could make a shadow, then you would bring the thing that casts the shadow into existence. And I think what Wolf is kind of saying here is imagine that you have a way through all the, the, Trekkie physics here to create a reflection first, then you could bring something into existence. That to me is what's really weird about this because it's almost like him saying the fish isn't somewhere else and we're just kind of teleporting it in here. Instead, we're literally bringing these, this creature whole cloth into existence. So here's why I think this is so important. Um, you've got a, a, a sort of science fictional point here where he's saying yeah actually there's a way to bring things into existence backwards like if you have the reflection first then you can make the thing come in and he's talking about that yeah in terms of these weird fish creatures and and i assume probably the apports too later on in earth but what's really cool to me is that that's very analogous to symbols make us right because a symbol is uh not a necessarily a reflection of something but it's a representation it's not the thing itself. It's something that has the meaning of something else that's in it. And then what happens is the symbol turns the real thing later that you, a symbol isn't just something that could come after um, and, and sort of refer to something. Instead, if you have a symbol, then the symbol is like a reflection of something. And then you bring the real thing into existence. Yeah. So to me, this is kind of like a really cool moment where he's taking some of that thematic idea about, how stories make things true and symbols make things true and turning that into basically a cosmology too, where the actual world works by you can manipulate reflections first and then have reality come later. That is paradoxical, but it's also <laughs> really, I mean, one of my things that I'm always looking for in these books is, is there a way to understand the book as being a world where there is no God, there is no supernatural anything, but that over time, the truth of those supernatural or religious stories come to be anyway. Hmm. And in some ways, this is kind of like him playing with the idea, but in physics of saying that, that we can make a thing 
that should be real, we can start with an idea of it or a false version of it and make something more real come into existence. Um, I think it's pretty cool because then he's sort of, he's doing all this stuff where, where those ideas are there in the physics, they're there in the sort of moral talk. And that's pretty powerful if that's actually what's going on. That's, that's again, totally dependent on reading that last line that an object will be brought into existence. Reading that is a very hard literal idea, but the apports, we know the way he talks about the apports and earth later on, it is more like they're things that get caught from all the time travel back and forth and then kind of where the, yeah, they come from, from somewhere else. And Heather's creatures are things that I think are summoned because they, um, like uh, Jonas recognizes the kinds of creatures, right? Like the nodules, like the things that he's seen before somewhere else. So it's not like they're things that Heather would make out of whole cloth out of that mm-hmm. point. So oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly right, but I really like that way of reading it because it's, it's totally opposite the way that you would think physics is supposed to work. Well, what about what happens with Domnia? We don't actually find out what happened to Domnia until the next chapter. Right. So that's the next sort of story question here is that's where Severian stops, stops mm-hmm. the story. And um, I don't know if there's more story that would have been told because he says that, look, as you said, we're coming to something. So she interrupts him. So maybe there was more to the story. that, that But we- there is, there is. In the next chapter, he says, he tells her, it says, a little while ago, I wanted to tell you about a friend of a friend of mine who was caught in Father and Neri's mirrors. Gotcha. Yep. She found herself in another world. And even when she returned, she wasn't quite sure she had found her way back to her real point of origin. I wonder if we aren't in the world, those people left instead of them in ours. So this is my interpretation. And it, it, there's two ways to say it. it could be an accident or it could be something more sinister. But the real Damnina who left Thecla is gone. Maybe he tossed her in the mirror. Maybe she fell into the mirrors. But that thing, that fish that was bouncing around, what was it we were asking? What is it going to become eventually? Well, I think what it became is Damnina. And because she was created from another universe, another timeline, Damnina Everything looks right. Everything looks the same to her, except for a few things are different, which is why she always speculates that she hasn't really returned to her point of origin. Since she got trapped in his mirrors, she must, the, the our damn Nina must have walked into those mirrors. And so did this one. But then Father Aniri, whether it's improvisation just because, oh my gosh, I, I've got to get the little girl back or because this was what he planned all along. I don't know. But that seems to me to be the story of what happened to Domnina and why she's so upset when she returns. Yeah. And that seems right. Um, it also connects to kind of what we know about Master Ash and time travel that that this dimensional travel might be similar to the way that it seems like time travel creates different possibilities. Like, I mean, Master Ash talks about how probable his world is compared to Severian. So maybe time travel works kind of on a similar model of this, that it's not so much about, I don't know, just directly going to different times, but actually sort of going through different possible probable versions of yourself, like different reflections of the same Mm -hmm. original time. I don't know. Um, But, that part does make me think that, yeah, Domina somehow got 
caught in there. And in the story of the cat, of course, we know the cat who gets caught into the mirrors is still around, sort of. There's a cat ghost of a sort. Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead. Let's think about that one. We we have the story of the cat. This came out a few months after the publication of Citadel of the Autark. Mm-hmm. And it's it's related by Odillo, whom Severian briefly meets in the House Absolute when he's looking for his sword. Um, we won't get to Odilla right now, but Father Aniri likes kids, he explains, as we've already seen. He especially likes young girls. Unlike the scary figure that Thecla describes, Odilla says that he frequently meets children in the chambers and corridors where the children of the upper class and the house absolute staff inappropriately mingle. And from time to time, he gives a toy to a child exhibiting some super techno abilities that for all intents and purposes is magical. Other times he'll offer them a story. And if he re-encounters a child who got a toy and the toy isn't lost or broken or got a story, and if they ask to give him another story, Aniri really likes that, especially if it's a girl and he makes them a special project. And this happened to a girl named Sancha. And she and Aniri could be seen walking around together, uh, you know, talking about all sorts of things. One day, though, Aniri took her into his presence chamber with the mirrored enclosure. And Odilo says, that when a person enters the mirrors, he this is what he says, they are circumfused to the borders of Bria. Now, I think this is important because this is the first reference in Wolf's writings to Bria that is our, our universe as opposed to Yesod, which is the world beyond the universe. What do you think the meaning of circumfused means here? Yeah, it's a cool word. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so like, circumscribed could mean like written into something um so circumfused means actually uh, i think of it as like woven into the, yeah. the I, th- I guess my understanding is that you become like a wave right in the universe you're everywhere at once you're part of the universe but as he describes it here she shows up and she has a cat with her and she tosses the cat into the mirrors and then from ever that from that point on she's followed by an invisible presence. And, you know, even when she's an old woman, she's followed by this presence. She becomes essentially a witch. She has a familiar. Everyone finds Mm -hmm, that creepy. mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes something will get knocked off a table. One time they see her just sitting. And then suddenly out of nowhere, a bird is sitting at her feet, a, a, a dead bird. So the cat interacts with our universe, but he's not quite there. He's maybe a little bit like Master Ash, when Severian is walking away from their house and he says he can only be there if it's probable that he could exist in that future. But then the further he walks away, the less probable it becomes. And soon he can hear him still talking, but he can't see him. So he's there, but he's not there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what the cat also is. sounds very much like a ghost. Yeah. Cat yeah. Seems like a ghost cat. Yeah. She's, she's haunted, right? <laughs> by mm-hmm. By the cat. But so I, my sense is that, you know, the, the cat becomes a wave, just like light is can be a wave and a particle at the same time. The cat is like that, too. Which brings us to where Jonas goes when he's at the House Absolute and he enters one of those mirrors. Right. I think most of the time we assume, oh, well, he just time traveled, right? Like he. Yeah. Yeah. He's going back to the ship or something. Right. But it could actually be, in fact, that he circumfused himself. <laughs> right. You know, right. Somewhere somewhere else and that's now why. he can go and he can influence time anywhere 
his, the past, the future. He can go back and change something in his past. He says he's going, he's off to do this in order to become the man that Jolenta would love, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so he can go back into his own past. There's no sense of going into what I think is going on, but it's important to understand that what's happening is he's not going back to the ship to, to fix himself. Right. It also means that he could be Miles and he and Miles could also be his own person. Right. Like like Miles could be someone else. Like the way that that seems to work. It's not like an all or nothing mm -hmm. identity. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, Jonas still exists. Right. And somewhere. that also and that works very, very closely to, I think, how identity and souls seem to work in Long Sun and Short Sun as well. That that there's this weird fluidity of. Mm -hmm people being connected or being someone, but also not sort of taking over completely someone else's person. I don't know exactly what words to use at that point, but yeah. Right. So yeah, definitely. So I, with Domnina though, right. She would be one who went through there and then came out. And so. Supposedly, but she's not so sure. Maybe not because there's no sense of someone being able to come through come out and step out of those mirrors. Mm -hmm. But we do have a sense of how they, how things are. Basically you have one of these, these little light creatures and, and it's based on a reflection. Well, what's the, what's this being reflected from? You were asking before, how can this be there? If they're, if they're standing in there in the middle of the mirrors? Well, that's the sense I get that it might be more sinister because he brings her in there. She is in the, basically it's, it's using her reflection and it's building another Domnina. I think that's a pretty likely inf inference to draw from that because something did more than just kind of freak her out. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, by the way, I would say too, that's also, if you do want to follow the thread of Domnina being the Domnicelli later on, then maybe this is the experience that led her on a religious path to yeah, whatever. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Well, but, yeah, you, you, um, it would be a very interesting Pellerine. Right. In that so case, no. this is all a lot of stuff, right? To just have Severian say, hey, I think I know what these gardens are, right? And like, this is a lot of information and, yeah. and different ideas. <laughs> it's a huge, right. yeah, huge, right. it's a huge exposition dump. And, and immediately, the, the sort of immediate version is that it makes you think, okay, well, then the way something is going on where if the mirrors are actually around the different gardens, then perhaps people are dimension traveling or time and space traveling at the same mm -hmm. time when they go in these gardens. Like that's the sort of immediate thing that you get from this. But then it raises all these other questions too, I think about the world and yeah. the characters and other things that come on. Well, Severian actually thinks to himself, wait a minute, maybe we've wandered. We basically, we've stepped into Father Neri's mirrors mm -hmm. and we've come, the world we've come out to is not the world we left. Yep. Agia <laughs> says, stops him in the middle of this story and says, Hey, we're, we're coming to something in the path. And Severian writes, the shade of the tropical trees was so intense that spots of sunshine on the path seemed to blaze like molten gold. Again, like molten gold. This is more evidence that where they are traveling is not the present, but the past, or mm -hmm. it's a sun of the past. Yep. Which is, it's golden now and not red. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and I squinted to peer beyond these burning shafts of light. Like it's just, it's regular sunlight. Right. But to him, it's, in, it's like intense, crazy sunlight that he's never seen before. Exactly. In his yeah. life. It's not red because we already know that, you know, even at noon, 
when the sun shines and everything, it's it's like a red light. On yeah. Everything. And I like too, that the way he first describes it, isn't that the light, but the shade was intense, right? Like yeah. It's, 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 which is a cool, just really <laughs> cool. Well, Ajia says that a house set on stilts of yellow wood, it's thatched with palm fronds. Can't you see it? And actually Severian can't see it right away. He has right. to keep walking toward it. And he says, something moved and the hut seemed to spring at my eyes as it emerged from the pattern of greens, yellows, and blacks. A shadowed splotch became a doorway, two sloping lines, the angle of the roof. A man in light-colored clothes stood on a tiny veranda looking down the path at us. So I think this demonstrates that as they are moving along this path, they are also moving in time. Right. As well right. as space. And the way he describes it is very much about things coming into focus, like blurry things coming to focus. So a shadowed splotch became a doorway. Two lines became mm-hmm. the angle of a roof. Very much like the fish was a bunch of splotches before. Yeah. And he was saying over time it was going to come. So if to me, that makes me think, OK, yeah, this is the action of the mirrors that's making. Right. It's, be, it's basically creating from another universe this scene. Yeah. And so I guess the question then is, did they travel? Did they travel? (laughs) Just did they travel in time? Did they travel in time and space? Did they travel to a different dimension altogether? You know, is this is this like from one universe to another universe? At this point, we don't know exactly how this stuff works. So it's most people think when we get to the hut in the jungle that he just went to the past. It could be it could be that he went to a totally different iteration of creation (laughs) who knows yeah um but i think that the way that the weirdness that describes how the nere's mirrors work any of those things are possible and you have to wonder what would happen if they stepped off the path so that where they couldn't see would they be trapped in this world forever but anyway but these chambers are potential methods for the future or the past to infiltrate the present Severian sees the man on the veranda. The veranda is like a little balcony porch. He sees the man looking at him, so he straightens his mantle to hide his fulligan cloak. But Ajia tells him that that's not necessary. It's not necessary here. The, the reason, as we'll see, is that the people here can't see visitors. Again, the visitors are a bit like Sancha's cat. But maybe Severian is different because the man on the veranda turns away with an expression of unmistakable terror and then went into the hut. So maybe he sort of does see him. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be all kinds of theories why in the next chapter. Possibly it's the nature of the Fulgen absorbing all light. It's just, but no, you know what? That's not true because we know that they're going to be able to see them both. Yeah. And we'll get there too, how different people seem to react in different ways. Different people can see different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that we should save for next time. Yeah. And who, when we go through the next chapter with Mark Aramini. Yeah. Who is gracious enough to come in and help us out with Hut in the Jungle, which honestly, I find that chapter more confusing than this one. I know this is often put forward as like, super <laughs> weird. And I think it's just because of the, the techno babble, <laughs> which I yeah. guess isn't totally babble. Um, but I mean, I, I think if you if you over expect the, the physics talk to make too much actual sense then you're kind of in trouble but if you if you can walk that fine line between yeah i mean reasonable 
discussion it kind of makes sense in a poetic stuff. if 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 physics were poetry then this would work yeah so. yeah i know everybody likes to say well wolf was an engineer so all of the physical stuff he thought out in tons and tons of detail yeah yeah he was also a writer yeah and, and, he, and he wasn't a, he wasn't a physicist he was right. an engineer so right right but so yeah so i actually feel like the hut is more confusing for a bunch of different reasons to me than this one so i am super glad that mark's gonna come yeah no, I think it's much less resolved by the time we get to the end. Of I feel it. like I feel like it is. Yeah. I mean, like I've walked away from this. I feel like, OK, I think I understand what happened with Domnina. I think I understand what happened with Sancha's cat. I, I have a sense of maybe what Jonas is doing. I, you know, there's so many possibilities what's happening with that hunt in the jungle. Yeah. So I'm glad we have Mark along for the ride. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have any totally different idea about what the mirrors are doing or how they work, or if you have a degree in physics and actually understand something in a way that's far better than we do, please let us know. Feel free to talk on the Facebook page. Send us an email, rereadingwolf at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter, the subreddit, which is getting a little bit of action here and there, which yeah. is cool. Um, and also feel free to write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also, of course, leave a review on any of the other apps that you use. Um, I just found a site that sort of collates all those different things in one place, so I'd actually be able to see it, which in the past, it would be like if somebody left a review on CastBox, you'd have to go look it up in CastBox to find it. But, but yeah, so feel free to do that as well, and it'll definitely get back to us. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. See you then. Thank you. Makes it sound like we're way more prepared. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Can you hear that? Uh, I, like a knocking? I thought I heard something. Hang on. Yeah, sure. Hey, Emily? Yeah? Are you doing carpentry down there? <laughs>